podcast has bad words. <laughs> what, what do you think the point of music is? Ooh, uh, two things. Uh, communication and expression. Um, I think all great music does both. I mean, you would never want a communicative music. Like, just strictly, you don't want a calculus textbook that's turned into, you know, music. But it can't be, it can't be 100% expressive either. No. Um, You're because, close. You're close. I mean, yeah. not to say that I have the objective answer, but, right. but um, it's connection. That's why it's so, it's like the closest thing we have in this world to magic is this thing that, that transcends language. It transcends demographic. Mm-hmm. It, ten, it transcends geography and it connects us. You know, Tell me you're getting this, Sean. We can include this in the maximal segment here. All right, good. This is a good place to start. Um, so, you know, just we're having a conversation about why do we have other musicians? Why don't I just play everything myself? Right. But like the connection between myself and the other musicians or the connection that's that that is part of the magic you know? I, I agree and also also connection to the listener right i mean there's this weird thing whether it's writing a book you know i can read a book from epictetus from 2300 years ago but he's now in my head even though we didn't even speak the same language our language yeah. his language doesn't exist today and and it's transcended my, that right, time absolutely yeah. and i think you know, music does even even takes that a step further because there's no language there doesn't have to be language at all around it right uh in fact, uh, Sigaros, the band Sigaros mm-hmm. from Iceland, like I think it's a made-up language they use, right? They use uh, Hopelandic. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's not even a. I mean, they use yeah. some Icelandic words. The one, of the, the closest I've ever had to a, like a a religious like uh, transcendent experience was at one of their concerts. Mm-hmm. Be, and the reason being, it was that connection you're talking about. And I think you, that you, you find yourself feeling all these different emotions and perhaps some some level of physiological response mm-hmm. and you're like it's just sound right <laughs> yeah, but it's other people singing along yeah. to nonsensical words these aren't yeah. real words but everyone was singing in unison i didn't know who they were at the time right. i had a uh uh ex-girlfriend of mine uh take me to the con- i had no idea who they were and like yeah. i was there and everyone's singing these songs it's almost there's like something, you go- there's something to be said about a gr- like a big group of people feeling that same thing and yes. participating in it I remember years ago seeing prairie home companion at the at the hollywood bowl uh-huh. and you know at the end of the night everybody breaks into you are my sunshine and i, I like spontaneously unexpectedly i break into tears you know like what is going on right now i'm not in control of my emotions <laughs> and, and it, you know it it, it, it tapped on this like wow okay i've dedicated my life to like jonah sort of achieving these connections and this is like the like a perfect example of why this works mm-hmm. you know like well, all these people from all different walks of life just sharing in this simple thing um yeah and and i think that that connection makes the quite often makes the product better, whatever you're producing. Uh, I think about our our documentary, Minimalism, and I think one of the reasons it resonated so much with people is because we fought with each other. Like uh, It was us and and the director, me and Ryan, the the director, Matt Diavella, and then the two producers we worked with on Mm -hmm. it. We all... I mean, we argued about it in a way that was productive. It wasn't mm-hmm. like, "Oh, you're stupid. I can't believe you." You'd... But it was it was us bringing what we could to the table. Yeah, and it was it was bringing various perspectives to the that, table. And that's a that's a fulfilling conversation to have. You yeah, know, you just asked me when's you know when are we going to get a new record out of you, and I I told you, well, you know, I've been pretty focused on the, the contenders thing, which is uh, your project with Josh Day. With Josh Day, we are the contenders. Um, is soon to be our name. <laughs> we are the contenders. dot com is where you find us. But I, I think we're actually going to call the band. We are the contenders, so that we're not confused with the other ten contenders bands that pop up every third week. Uh-huh. Um, but part of the thing that makes that project so fulfilling is that there's this push and pull. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just you know my sort of unchallenged vision of the music I create, but like this collective thing, which is you know is is more interesting to me at this point. In, in there, my life well, and career, there's something to, to be said about about the collaboration there. But then there's also something we need to be careful of, which is like art by committee. Like if mm-hmm. if you're trying to please everyone, yeah. you'll you'll please no one. That's true too. Now, do you find mm-hmm. with your music that um, there's a Matt Carney line? 
he said uh you have 25 years to make your first album two years to repeat sort of thing yeah. and and um there's like I think there's there's I think external a lot of people pressure. Is that a Matt Carney line? I mean, it's, he, it's, he it's, it's, it's in a song. Oh, okay, yeah, okay. yeah. Um, and uh, I I find that like it's a, that line is really about external expectations, and and in more ways than one, there are some people who want you to keep making the things you think you need over and over. Yeah, they want true. that same album, yeah, but with new lyrics mm-hmm. every twelve months mm-hmm. <laughs> or every twenty four months. Um, there are other people who would expect you to have sort of gradual change. Mm-hmm. There, there are other people who, um, you know, like a Bob Dylan who changed so radically, you know, he would go... Or the f- Beatles, you know, think about how, how rapidly the Beatles evolved in seven years, uh-huh. you know, like, but whatever it is, you just got to make the thing that you want to make mm. because it's what you're, what you're feeling. If you, if you set out to do something because you think somebody's going to like it, that doesn't usually work. Right. It's weird because I'm working on, on the... Start with the truth. You know, start with oh. your own truth. Uh-huh. And then go from there. Yeah, the subjective truth, so to speak. Yeah. Um, because it is, it becomes your truth. Uh, the book that, that we're working on right now, this is the first time I've actually wrote a book with an audience in mind. Now, it's not like, well, I'm writing for this particular demographic or something mm-hmm. like that, but it is more advice-driven in a way, mm-hmm. but it's still through my own lens. It's the only lens I can't mm-hmm. pretend to write through someone else's experience, and I think that's where we get in trouble. Um, I also think we get in trouble when we... We see, we try to pretend to be infallible, right? For a few reasons. One is no one is, but two, like that doesn't really resonate with people. No, and it, it, I mean, at least in music, it can be. Uh, I think one of the most powerful things is just admitting when you've fucked up. Yeah, <laughs> you know, or, you know, just point blank. Yeah, because we all do it. Everybody, you know, n- nobody's got a completely clean record. Everybody makes a mistake. Everybody, you know, whatever it is. Um, and I think starting with that, when I say start with the truth, I mean, just be honest about who you are and where you're coming from as the, that's the starting point for trying to make a piece of art, mm. you know, how, how you see it and how you came through this world or out of this world and how you're walking through it, I guess. I think we should talk about... Yeah, we have some lightning round. We have yeah, a whole... We have, we have like 9,000 questions. Yeah, these, these surprise questions here. Before we get into those, actually, I've got this article that I thought would be a good jump-off point. And we can talk about some of these questions here because there's one that's fascinating about originality doesn't exist. Mm. And I think in music, that's... that's it's, it's both that true is, and not true at the same time, in a yeah. way. It depends on how... But it how, is a challenge, you know? Yeah. You make that time, you sit down with a guitar in the morning... I think that the most challenging thing is to to play or say something that you haven't already said before that you haven't heard somebody say say before. Yeah, that is that is that is a trick. Or to say yeah. it in a way that resonates differently. Yeah. Uh, also, but, but you really gotta unplug your conscious brain in mm. order to do that. We've got this article here, 25 Ways to Be More Creative. Uh, we'll put a link to it in the show yeah. notes. I'm not going to read all of them, but I thought some of these were really useful, especially when you are a creative person, you're trying to write and you're feeling stuck. You know, I don't, I personally don't believe in writer's block. I, I don't think it exists. Um, no, uh, just you're be- just thinking about other stuff. Uh, right, right. It, it, we, we never hear a bricklayer say they have bricklayer's block, right? It's just mm-hmm. like, no, I I create the thing i'm supposed to create you, you you wouldn't hear them i can't come into work today like i just have bricklayers block yeah i think if you're writing fiction you know you don't know where the story is gonna go mm-hmm. that could be writer's block or you don't know who you want to write about you don't know who you you have to invent a character right right yeah it's uh, uh but that, we we had this question earlier about um where uh, limitation was it limitations can yeah. be they bring creativity yeah creativity yeah there, there's it, look, who's quite who who asked about that um i will get to it but yeah anyway well, go ahead but uh, you know i was gonna say sometimes having boundaries mm-hmm. can can make can be a, a a great catalyst for making something happen right you I, know if you sit down and you're like all right i'm gonna write some piece of music today on some instrument and it's gonna be out about something and have some mood there's no you know there's no boundaries uh-huh 
it's like it's like sitting down to watch a movie on Netflix. It's you know, unless you know what you're going to watch before you sit down, good luck. Your yeah. evening or my evening's gone. You know, right. it's like oh no, oh oh what's that? Oh no, oh that looks no, that's not that interesting. Okay, oh a documentary, full full length doc. No, you know it can go on forever. The same thing can happen. But if you know, all right, today I'm going to write a sad song on the piano about my dog dying uh-huh. you know whatever it is um that's a starting point but you know that, and you can that, chase it down and it may it may be the greatest song that's ever greatest sad piano ballad ever written it may not be great but you're going to learn something from that experience and you can move forward having boundaries i think can can it's part of the process i think that the the even the piano there is a type of limitation because you've at least limit you you you've said okay that's the instrument that i want to use here right and you yeah. cre- it's a creative limitation or i think about artists who now have functionally unlimited resources and they're not necessarily making better music than when they were recording it in their bedroom to their you know their four track or to a deeper their- exploration you know there's a chance you, to to get to some place really new and original having unlimited uh creative resources and and an unlimited palette can be a real advantage but it's not a necessity to get right. there you know some like there's a lot of great record think of bonavere's first record mm-hmm. which he made in a freaking shack in wisconsin in the winter with like a couple you know simple instruments and right he just got he just got weird <laughs> you yeah. know just went out there and got weird and came back with something truly beautiful um all those things. I mean, we've, we've, we're starting to get get cyclical on, on saying this, but it's it it's making the time, sit in the chair, mm-hmm. do it. So some 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 things to think about when you're stuck creatively or feeling stuck creatively. The first thing in this uh, Inc. magazine article is ask the right question. I think I think that's really important. I'll just read the the. Uh, first paragraph here. Sawyer tells the stories of the beginnings of Starbucks and Instagram. Neither company would be what it is today if its founders had continued to try to solve the original questions they sought to answer. Instead of asking, how can I recreate the Italian espresso bar in the United States? Howard Schultz eventually looked at what wasn't working with that idea to instead ask, how can I create a comfortable, relaxing environment to enjoy great coffee? Um, while Kevin Seistrom originally pondered how he could create a great location sharing app. I mean, that's Instagram started as a location sharing app. The better oh. question turned out to be, how can we create a simple photo sharing app? So I think just maybe slightly shifting the question that you're asking yourself or asking more questions, you, you'll start getting answers and you'll probably start getting more questions yeah. as well. Or you would start to get uh, sort of productive boundaries. You know, mm. this is what I'm going to focus on today. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, number two is become an expert. We hear about the uh, the ten thousand hours of practice or or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, the word expert sounds daunting because like any time we start something. Uh, we would love to be the expert, you know. You you pick up your guitar for the first time, and and yeah, you might know a few chords, but but you're certainly not an expert. And it takes a long time to become an expert at that. But even when you become an expert, there are varying degrees of expertise, right? Yes, of course. Um, there's also something to be said for the spontaneity of 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 knowing less you know i think i'm not sure about the context of this quote but um you know if you were to kind of go down and make yourself an expert on say um you know the the history leading up to vietnam war you know colonial colonialized vietnam like Uh uh, you, you might find some seed of inspiration there if you really get down into the details some you might find some inadvertent poetry about tragic poetry about the whole situation um and the same with you know if you're an expert uh make yourself an expert of guitar and you you have a a, a, an expanded palette but there's also something to be said for um paring things down to their uh sort of their their primal elemental version that that you know strike an emotional chord in you as a human 
And if you can find a way to articulate that sort of primal emotional reaction, and it can be very simple, it can be very rudimentary, that can be a very beautiful uh, art, artistic expression. You reminded me of uh, it was a David Gray song that sounds really upbeat. It's called Be Mine. And it's like this, he's, yeah. uh, but when you listen to the lyrics, it's actually a guy who's in a war and being shot at. And, oh, yeah. and, and the chorus is almost like dissonance between the, the, the chorus and the, the action that is transpiring during mm -hmm. the verses and bullets are flying over his head. But there's also a weird sort of beauty in, in that even. And mm -hmm. he's trying to, to express that. And uh, which brings me to, I'll, I'll read one more point from this here. It's generate lots of ideas. And I think we touched on that a moment ago, but yeah. I, like that's, I said, ideas aren't power. I think they're potential power, but that's where, where it really starts is having the ideas. Absolutely. I mean, one, the last solo record that I did make um, was called Letters from the Lost. And my process for that was a little bit different because I, I, all of a sudden I was a, I was a dad mm -hmm. with you know, a mortgage living in the woods in contrast to being sort of a freewheeling, uh, freewheeling single guy, well, you know, in a relationship, but, you know, not married and no kids and living in a, an apartment in Los Angeles. As your life changes, your perspective changes. And, and in those days, like writing songs, you know, I wrote songs. When I, I wrote them in the back of the van. I wrote them late at night. Uh, you know, I had very little responsibility, very little structure. It was fun. Um, but so with Letters from the Lost, before that became a record, uh, you know, I, I'd, I'd gone on the road and played 30 or 40 shows in the fall of 2011. And most of them were like college campus gigs. Um, so I logged a bunch of miles. I wore myself out playing solo shows and then <clears throat> I got home and I said, all right, I'm going to write the month of December, the month of January. What I'm going to do is I'm going to spend nine to five every day writing. Wow. And the rule would be that I would start with a new idea and I'd have the day to cultivate it into a demo. And so, uh, you know, it didn't necessarily need to be a song but it needed to be something that didn't exist before that day, you uh -huh. know? So sometimes it would be a lyrical exercise. Sometimes it'd be a, you know, a drum beat that I'd kind of build around. Sometimes it'd be a, a riff on a mandolin or a guitar. And I, so I did that, you know, for, I got about uh, 40 days in 40, like songlets, you know, baby songs, if right. you want to call them. And, but I, the other rule was that at the end of the day, I wouldn't, I, I, I would record it. I'd put like a little mix on it, and then the next morning I would not go back and listen to it. Uh, so every single day I'd have something, you know, that was a little bit more polished than you know a voice memo demo from your phone. And so I did that for forty days, and I collected this big mass of stuff. And from that, I put nine songs on a record. Yeah, you know? sort of mining what you had yeah, created. Yeah, they, they and, were your ideas, but you actually took action on those ideas. Right, and 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 just didn't look back uh -huh. you know it was just forward only which was a really kind of beautiful experience in the absence of having the connection of other musicians around me you know to to sort of feed off of it was just having this sort of tunnel vision on we're going to go from nothing to something and and it allowed me to flex uh f flex the creative muscle as a, as a writer of lyrics and it allowed me to flex uh, creative muscles as uh, as an instrumentalist and find different melodic and harmonic relationships that I wouldn't have found if I had been you know subjecting myself to the invisible whip of editing as I go it's right. like it doesn't matter this might be total shit but I'm just gonna follow it down and see where it goes and not look back I think that uh it's one of the things I, I talk about when I in my writing class, when I teach students, I, we break the writing into two components, composition and, and editing. Mm -hmm. Because good writing is rewriting and good music is, is well put together. You know, there's a difference between a garage band and a well-produced album, or there's a difference between your voice memo and the final product, mm -hmm. obviously, right? Both but, can be compelling. Right. And, and, and I think that 
the composition is necessary. It's getting you know the words onto the page, and I, I have them stave off the self editor for a mm-hmm. period of time, and actually have encouraged people to edit twice as much as they compose. Yeah. But the composition, you have to compose in order to have something to edit. Otherwise, yeah. it's, there's nothing to edit. You have to yeah. you have to build it up, and ultimately the bones are the beauty, and you strip away the excess, and that's where the sort of minimalism idea comes yeah. in into play. But you you end up with something that is greater than the idea, but it is also m- more stripped away, more basic, more pure than the than than the initial initial idea. Yeah. Well, that's a, you you tied into um, in the lightning round when you're running down questions. Uh-huh. Somebody asked, you know, how do you apply minimalism to the creation of music? Yeah, and um, an economy at least in the the kind of music that I make, you know, I think there's plenty of music where economy, you know, whether it's Baroque music, economy is the opposite of what we want. You want, you want flourishes all day long, you right. know? You have a simple melody that's, you know, at a 16th note pattern, a, a, a variation on a theme. Um, but in the type of music that, that I make, um, and I think in effective songwriting, economy is everything, you know? If it's not... If it's not adding value, it's it's destroying the song. Right. Um, and the same thing for the production. It's like you want to strip the production to the like it has to hurt not to play it. Yeah. You know, it has to be excruciating not to have it there. Um, so I would I would say you know when when, you, when you're writing the song, does every word does every note mean something? And if it doesn't, if it's just occupying space, then take another look at it. Then this editorial process comes back to it. And the same thing with the production. You know, with the production of music, I'm sure you've heard this, like you've heard a, you've heard music before that you've thought to yourself, oh, that's kind of overproduced. You know, it's yeah. like, like the arrangement, the instrumentation is getting in the way of the melody or it is getting in the way of the visceral transference um, of of the emotional intent of of the song, um, so you know I would I would implore any <laughs> anyone who's listening to this that is wondering how does minimalism apply to making music is like that's a starting point yeah you know and also it, it's a finishing point as well I, I think about yeah you might get to the point at the end of a you know, at the end of a session, you you record this thing with a band. And you're like, gosh, you know what? I, I I've done this so many times. You know, I play most of my shows with an acoustic guitar, right? And I can't tell you how many times in record where I've just been like, man, if you just take the acoustic guitar out of this recording, right? It's so much more interesting oh, and so much more potent. Mm. Um, so, yeah, to your point of of maybe at the end of the process, looking at what is not absolutely necessary, that can really be a great way of streamlining and and uh, kind of ratcheting up the emotional horsepower of 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 the end product. In writing, I talk about something that I call narrative urgency, and like the the point of the the first sentence is to. S- make the reader want to read the second sentence. Mm -hmm. And the point of the second sentence is to make the reader want to read the third sentence. And if that second sentence doesn't serve a purpose, I don't care how wedded you are to it and you feel like, oh, like everything that leaves my quill is golden or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like you have to, you have to be willing to, uh, who was it? Fitzgerald said, kill your darlings. Like you have to be willing to, to, even if you feel like it's precious and beautiful, like it has mm-hmm. to hit the cutting room floor if yeah, it doesn't once, serve. You want to get to the next point. And with music, I think with the you know with songwriting, a lot of times you have you have limitations again. You have parameters. You, you might know the structure of a song before you even know what it's about. You might have the melody of a song before you know what it's about. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll have this chorus like, oh, this is a chorus. This, it may have like one phrase. And you know what the phrase, what the melody that matches that phrase is going to be, and then you kind of know what the verse is going to feel like this, and it's going to sound like this, but you're not yet sure what's going to say, you know. So then you have this overall structure of, say, it's going to be verse, chorus, verse, chorus, instrumental, bridge, chorus, out, you mm-hmm. know. So this, you have like a roadmap of the whole thing, and you might write a, a set of verse lyrics that means so much to you but then have just not enough to do to set up that chorus 
And so, yes, you have to be willing to go back and kill your darlings yeah. and, and, and get it to the point where the listener cannot wait to get to the chorus. And when they go back to the, you know, when it gets back to the verse, that's exactly where they want to be. Yeah. And, and there's, you know, there's an element of uh, unexpected and, and originality has never happened before. But there's also this element of, of kind of giving the people what they need. You know, that's the thing that you want to say is like you when you when you're making music, you want to enjoy it. And you also you want to connect. And by connecting, you want to give the listeners what they need, not necessarily what they want, but like you want to achieve this connection that resonates. There's a band called Parlor Hawk. I don't know if you're familiar with name. Yeah, they uh, (laughs) they're based out of Provo, Utah. Oh, yeah, I think is like the most underrated music scene in all of the country. There's a, a particular sort of angst there yeah. and, and sort of counterculture there. Yeah. With Velour, young, is Velour the venue there? Yeah. Yeah, I've yeah. there. Okay. Uh, yeah. You, you probably know, uh, uh, is it Corey or Cody who owns it? He had a... Um, been, been a it's probably been eight or nine years since I've been out there. Yeah. Uh, Joshua James. Yeah. Does he live out there? Yeah, he does. Yeah, I used to I used to see him around the the hotel cafe scene quite a bit. Yeah, he's but he's so a, good. He's a he's a cool cat too. Yeah. Like it, it, it's like a farm, right? Is yeah, he? he lives in American Fork, uh, Utah. Um anyway, his producer, Nate Pfeiffer, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he uh he did the music for our first documentary. He's working on the music for our uh, second documentary. Okay. Um, him and the lead singer of, of the band Parlor Hawk. Um, okay. And so they, um, well, well, Nate um, did, I think, the first three or four or five Joshua James records. But there's yeah, this whole scene love. there. Yeah, I mean, they do such a, s- such a good job. Uh, and then Corey, who owns Valor, he had, a, he had to have a kidney transplant recently. And it was, oh, gosh. A, yeah, he had, uh, he, yeah, he had issues. It was a guy from a band. I'm glad he got one. Yeah, me too. Uh, Moth in the Flame. I don't know if you're familiar with their music. They're also from Provo. They live out here in LA. You have to give me a, a list of stuff to listen to. Yeah, from Provo in yeah. particular. Yeah, yeah. but uh, the lead singer of that band gave one of his kidneys to to Corey. Oh, wow. Yeah, to keep the venue alive, but keep him alive, more that importantly. That is a nice gift. Yeah, oh my God. Wow. Yeah, his uh, uh, their album is, uh, their new album that came out this year, 2019, um, it's probably my favorite album of uh, 2019, The Moth and the Flame. It's really good. I'll, I'll okay. send it over to you. Yeah. But I say all that to say there's a band, Parlor Hawk, uh, who Nate Pfeiffer produced. And they have a song, my, one of my favorite songs of all time, a song on their second record called Save Me. Mm-hmm. And they produced it. Like, it was It's this beautiful song. And they brought in like people to play the strings. And like it was like this orchestral sort of thing. Yeah. And they made it real big. And... It was like what you just said. Oh, this is overproduced. And oh. they stripped it down to just... Now, uh, Drew, who is the lead singer, his voice is kind of like an you know instrument. but So it's his voice, a very aggressively simple acoustic guitar, and some like uh, distorted electric guitar. And mm-hmm. that's it. They stripped everything yeah. else out. And it's a really short song, too. It's like two minutes long, so it doesn't even follow the same sort of patterns but you realize it maybe it took building this thing up massive in order to strip it down to, to find its beautiful its essence. essence yeah 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 that does happen let's dive into some of these questions here samuel asks now samuel i'm going to criticize you a little bit for your, your the way you gently. wrote this question gently. very gently uh you know whenever i'm criticizing i'm really just judging myself uh, judgment is but a mirror. Um, how can I best execute intentional craft while also cultivating a diverse portfolio of interests and or hobbies? Now, it sounds like you're writing a corporate email to me, Samuel. Yeah. Um, you use Compiling the term, a... Let's say that again. Uh, how do... How, how the second can part. I best execute intentional craft? Well, let me say, okay. first off, craft is by definition intentional. There's no such thing as unintentional craft. It's not craft uh, otherwise. Execute. I'm not sure what you mean by that verb, but we'll we'll set it aside now. While also cultivating a diverse portfolio of interests and or hobbies, uh, and then he goes on to say, as a minimalist, how many hobbies or artistic pursuits I, I are too much? I think he's saying, how do I make stuff and have fun? Ah, that's a better question. But uh, that's what you should do. Is it? Was it Nate? Was uh, it? Samuel. Samuel. Yeah. Well, make stuff and try to have fun doing it. 
and do stuff that you enjoy doing mm. and everything's going to be good. Yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> and by the way, you're not always going to enjoy it, yeah. um, especially at first. One of the things I tell writing students is like, at first, you're probably going to want to put your head through the wall 80% of the time. Yeah, it hurts sometimes. Yeah. It but does. the payoff, that other 20%, as you alluded to earlier, there's nothing that feels better when like when it's all working and the song's coming together yeah. and then... Oh, it will still... It will come to drive you crazy again, you know? There will come a time where you... Like, you inadvertently hear a track that you recorded 10 years ago that somebody loves you're like oh i, I wish i had it does happen do you but have any of those songs you gotta you just gotta move forward you know do you have any songs that you won't play live anymore for, for uh, reason or another yeah there's i mean they kind of i won't say never mm -hmm. you know but there are definitely songs from my early records that i very very rarely play you know that uh, maybe i'm slightly embarrassed of yeah um really yeah just you know just because it was like a juvenile perspective that i was like i've come to say, oh that was silly you yeah. know what i'm saying there is silly or, or the way i'm singing it is silly um it happens that's fine that's that's great and there may be there may come a day where i just play those songs for fun mm. that, that that's uh i think that's part of it um you know, as I kind of tour around now, mostly with Josh as the contenders, um, we've written a bunch of music together, and then we have kind of a, a little stable of my solo work that that resonates with where we are right now, mm -hmm. um, and uh, that you know that's okay. But I, th I think we've we've answered Samuel's question. Um, hopefully, we have. I, I think I would encourage him not to be. You know, if he's making a record and that's his cultivating a collection of work, uh -huh. if you're making a record, you've got this context of whatever it is, eight to ten songs, and, you know, you either want to, there's two approaches. Either you want to have one singular idea, vibe, mood that you want to con convey, or you want it to be, uh, you know, we call our contender shows, we like to provide folks with an emotional roller coaster. <laughs> You know, an amusement park for their for their feelings. Okay. Um, and, and if that's what he wants to do, like you just you have to just define what you're trying to achieve and 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 go do that. Well, the second part of his question is: Are uh, is there such thing as having too many hobbies or artistic pursuits, or too little? I I don't really have hobbies personally, so I'm I'm no. not I'm not no a hobbies. No, not not really, because no. I, I tend to turn a hobby into. You, uh, you go OCD on it. You I'm, go I'm full, full OCD. Yeah. Metal jacket. On yeah. it, it's the reason that Ryan and I work so well together is he's like, I'm OCD. He's ADD. So he's like yeah. all over the place. Yeah. And I'm just constantly reining him in. Like, I, but here's the thing. Like, I've been accused of both. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that, there's a lady who comes in, right? Actually, the lady who co-wrote Keepers of the Time. She's like, I've never seen someone who's so extremely OCD and ADD at the same time. Wow. Yeah. So, so yeah. um, I don't know if you have hobbies. For me, I tend to like, well, I'll take on a new thing. Like, I do the same thing with my hobbies. I go bananas on them. There you go. So but, whether it's podcasting or writing books or whatever, it becomes a just a creative pursuit, less, mm -hmm. less so a hobby. Ryan, on the other hand, he has a ton of hobbies. He has to actually stop himself from having hobbies. He's yeah. like, I don't want to take on all the equipment to go fly fishing or whatever. Yeah. So he, you know, he has skateboards, he surfs, he does all these things. Yeah. No, I, and I think, I think to answer the question... In word, yeah, you can have too many hobbies, especially if you're the kind of person that that likes to do things to the fullest. You know, yeah. there's there's a lot of things that I'd like to do, but and I do have hobbies, but I have to limit them because they all take up a fair amount of time, space, and energy, and they get in the way of what is truly yeah. important. Well, it could be what's really important, though. You know, I still like I surf. I live in a landlocked state, so every time I come to California, you know, I've got time doing stuff like this which i love mm -hmm. you know or i'm or writing music or or hanging with other musicians but then it's also a priority to, to make sure that i i spend three or four days out of each week with you know two hours in the ocean surfing yeah because it does fill me up it quiets my mind it makes me feel good you know i can i can if i get a good wave it's locked in the in the memory bank forever and for i can sure. savor it like when i'm uh you know 
sick in bed in the middle of winter, you know, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah, well, and also, so maybe that's a way to delineate it. That, the surfing example is a great one. It actually serves your other creative endeavors because it either recharges you or it, it fuels you in a way that you would not get. It's also a, a meditative mm -hmm. uh, practice in a way. And so sometimes hobbies can serve our other creative endeavors. Sometimes they might get in the way of those creative endeavors. Sure. Yeah. And so I think maybe trying to distinguish between the two would yeah. be really important. Well, it's, it's like it's like you would do with stuff. Is it is it adding value and bringing joy? Right. Or is it getting in the way yeah. and, and, and taking up space? Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of hobbies can, can do that. They can bring a lot of joy. They can stimulate your mind and your spirit and you know, move, move things forward. And if they don't, then don't waste your time with it. Yeah. John has a question here. I'm interested in writing about my journey in the hope it could be a useful resource to others and to improve my own writing at the same time. The majority of my own principles and values are rooted in the work the minimalists do, plus a few other people. So I'm scared I would simply be rehashing your ideas despite the minor addition of my own musings. Do you have any advice on how I could expand my outlook and how I might avoid indeliberately copying the advice and ideas of others? Also, do you have any useful writing resources? Um, Jay, you probably, I guess my question for John would be, Okay, what's wrong with copying? Like at some at, at, at first, you're probably going to copy. Yeah, like all art is kind of a form of plagiarism. All right, you know, we're, we're as creating things. The art that we've absorbed as individuals is mixed in with our own personal experiences, and and that's what we create. But it sounds like it sounds like he should write his story. You know, yeah. he should write that book, uh -huh. and then see how it comes out, and then he should read a whole bunch of books and watch a whole bunch of movies and and go live and write the next installment. Yeah. I, I, th I think you really have to get familiar with the, the sort of canon of what you're trying to do. I mean, you, you're you versed in, in music. You know, you, you didn't come out of the womb with a you know, guitar pick in hand and uh, you you sort of figured out you know what resonated with you and I'm sure at first you did, you know, whatever. Yeah, I tried to be, I tried not to be a, a singer songwriter you know, okay. i really just wanted to play guitar in a jam band oh wow that's really all i wanted <laughs> well yeah. and then i realized it wasn't really a good enough guitar player to do that <laughs> well uh, but also and i think that's a fascinating point with this is like you have a really beautiful voice and Thanks, so and, and and you would be uh, you'd be doing a disservice to the people who have really enjoyed your music if you would have just been a, a guitar player. Uh, the same way I think you know, John Mayer would have been a, would have done a disservice. He's a phenomenal guitar player, mm -hmm. but also would have done a disservice had he not started writing. He's a great songwriter yeah. and, and a very good singer as well, and yeah. he probably would have done a disservice there. And so it, I think that when, when we're looking at, at John's question, I think yeah, it's it's good if you want more. If you don't want to copy, copying isn't bad. You want to copy the way a collage artist copies, where it's like you you want to have a bunch of different perspectives. If right now you only have the minimalist perspective, then yeah, you probably don't have enough well, perspective. Maybe instead of instead of rehashing or or reciting what principles you guys have in your books, let's hear about how it works through the lens of John's experiences. Mm -hmm. That could be really interesting. Absolutely. Even, even if it is like, here's the direct application of this thing I read about and everything that remains. But let's hear how about how that affected his life. That could be really interesting. Yeah, yeah. When I, and what conclusions has he drawn from that? When we're writing this this new book right now, I mean, it's a combination of my own sort of wisdom gained through my own experience, mm -hmm. but also the uh, the other experts out there. Now, mm -hmm. John needs to go back and read you know, the Stoics or uh, Epicureans or, or go back to uh, Thoreau. Epicurean, and, like, yeah. Yeah. Is that the, you've mentioned that a couple times today. Epictetus, I probably mentioned Epictetus, earlier. Okay. Yeah, Epictetus is a, he's one of the three major Stoics that. Okay, I gotta uh, go check out the Stoics. Yeah, yeah, like. so, so I mean, you've got Marcus Aurelius, you've got Seneca, you've got Epictetus. There are others, but they're, they're, they're the, the ones that have the surviving works. And when did you get into these? 
Um, right when I first stumbled across minimalism as a concept, um, as a, as a lifestyle, mm -hmm. but then I also like look at other minimalists, like whether it's minimalist art or minimalist literature, like Brad Easton Ellis or Lori Moore and, and Jay McInerney, they're not lifestyle minimalists. Mm -hmm. They are, uh, minimalist fiction authors, right? And they mm -hmm. write in a way that is, that is aggressively stripped down. And, mm -hmm. and so I got some, some sort of guidance from that, but I'm copying from all when you eventually when you copy from 200 different people you're actually then creating your own perspective in a way yeah, yeah I, I assume you find that with music as oh, well yeah. you you can't just listen to one thing you know yeah. you can't you, you have to you have to feed your creative soul mm -hmm. or your creative mind whatever you want to say so maybe that's the, the other part of the 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 answer to the question is is uh dig deeper you know, seek to seek a deeper understanding of, of this, this whole uh, miracle of yeah. life, you know? Yeah. And it's great that these, these concepts that he found here with you are, you know, extremely resonant, but there's, a, there's a lot, there's a lot too, you know, and, and your experience is, is your own collage of, of what you've taken in. Right. So, yeah, I, I think about, um, if you're just copying, uh, you know, one person is going to sound like a ripoff, right? I mean, and I think we all do it to so, some extent. When you first start writing or start singing or whatever, uh, a friend of mine, Griffin House, you know Griffin, right? Uh, not Maybe. not personally, but I, I mean, you know who he years is. Years ago, I I went, you know, my day job when I lived in Los Angeles was booking this place called Room Five okay. on the Bra like right down the street from here on the okay. Brea between Beverly and First. Um, is it still around? It's no longer okay. a music. It might be part. It's not called Room Five anymore. Okay. Um, it's uh, yeah. It's it's on the the west side of the street between Beverly and First, and they had an Italian restaurant called Amalfi downstairs, and then upstairs was was uh, was Room Five, and it was like a, held about ninety people. But I booked Griffin House there. Okay. And and I think even did sound for him, um, and then you know I we. We bumped into each other a couple of times here and there. I'm a, I'm a fan of his work, but anyway, sorry. We're from the same town. And, and, oh, you are. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. He's from Springfield, Ohio, and and I'm from Dayton. It's the same metro mm -hmm. area. And uh, you ever play shows in Dayton? No. Holy moly! We got to do that. Yeah, we got to get you there. We'll, we'll, we'll do a we'll do a, like a minimalist Jay Nash show together in Dude, Dayton. I'd love to. We'll get Griffin to come out. It would be great. That'd be but great. um, he uh uh. I, you listen to his demo tapes from like I think guess he was twenty one or something, yeah. And it sounds like you too. Like you could just see how. Oh how, yeah. But here's here's a weird thing. I'm I actually enjoy his demo tapes more than I enjoy U two albums. And oh, so yeah. my my point to John is like, see what happened there. You yeah. might have the same perspective as me, but there's going to be someone where your perspective, is slightly different take on it, actually resonates with them more than my own yeah, perspective. Like, there would no, there would not be Alabama Shakes had there not been Otis Redding. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and it's a different thing, but it's important. It's part of the, it's part of the thing. And there's like this day and age in music, there's so many examples of that. Of like, you know, Leon Bridges is 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 uh, channeling Sam Cooke, mm. and Chris Stapleton is channeling like ghosts of Leonard Skinner and and all kinds of other soul and Southern rock. Right. It's part of the process, so yeah. It is, Go yeah. write that book, John. Yeah. Uh, Nicholas asks, any thoughts or useful resources on how to grow my business sustainably and in a more minimalist way? Um, you face this now because you're also a, a businessman. That is the, that's the music industry writ large now. Yeah. And it's, it's both... Um, I wish I had the, the answers here. Uh, but. Right, but, but and I think part of the answer is that it's an ever-changing landscape. That is... That is the first thing you need to understand is that the thing that worked yesterday is there's absolutely no guarantee and probably chances are will not work tomorrow. So yeah, identifying you, I you your strength, you sell fewer CDs now than you used to because people don't buy CDs anymore. Oh, Sure. And this has been happening for 50 years, you right. know, it was vinyls to eight track to CDs to, or to eight tracks to tapes to CDs to digital downloads and nobody even buys digital downloads you know right. there was a there was a stretch where digital downloads like paid my mortgage you uh -huh. know it was just like that was a nice chunk of change it's going to come in every month but they don't like the Apple iTunes store is closing up right. you know um, and streaming is an entirely different landscape 
the one thing I would sort of advise is, you know, to identify where your strengths truly are and identify, you know, the things that you don't understand and where your weaknesses are and try to delegate those tasks to somebody who can effectively handle and manage them or teach yourself to, to, to handle those things. But you, you know, you have to be ready to pivot. You have to be ready to adapt, um, and channel some of that creative energy into, uh, sustaining yourself. You know, there's like, ideally we could devote 100% of our creative energy into making stuff that we're emotionally connected to. But the reality is for any creative, whether it's, uh, Jay Nash or Joshua Fields Milburn or it's Katy Perry or Jay-Z, they've all had to figure out how to move the work into the landscape and how to uh, get that to generate income. And evolve with the landscape. Yeah. When Ryan and I first started The Minimalist, we started a blog. We made no money from it. There was, that was not even our intention. We were both still in the corporate world, and it was a mm-hmm. way to document this neat little journey. Mm-hmm. It was a way for me to dive into nonfiction a little bit because I'd never written about, I'd never written nonfiction other than you know corporate emails. Mm-hmm. And uh, from there, it was like blog, and then books, and then touring, and mm-hmm. which I never expected, right? And 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 as our landscape changed, uh, or as the landscape changed, our landscape changed. So that we eventually got into podcasts, or making films, and then doing YouTube videos, and. Like you said, we had to eventually bring people on to help us with some of that stuff. It's not that we couldn't do it on our own, Mm -hmm. but I'm not a great filmmaker. Jordan is a great filmmaker, and so we brought him on. Sean is really great at audio and editing, uh, and and he's he's also really good at editing the written word as well. He used to be an English teacher. And allows you to focus on what you're great at. Right, and it and, and, uh, gives me more time for that, but also gives me different perspectives as mm-hmm. well. Aubrey asks, do you think you have to come up with an original idea to have it be considered art? Or can you do something in the creative field really well without having to reinvent the wheel? I am a food photographer, and I feel like I can't come up with a different idea to, fo- to photograph a cheeseburger. But I can photograph it so that it looks delicious and it makes my clients happy. Do you have ideas on how to gain inspiration without looking at Pinterest or other people's art? Um, well, I mean, if you're a food photographer, and we were just talking about this before we, we even started, like we're we all give, food photographers now. We should uh, send a connecting email to her and Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Andrew Bell, uh, who for a period of time had a great food podcast called Stimma, but he is—he's actually a good food photographer. Strangely, he yeah. he's a great—he's a great—he's a great chef, from what I hear, and he's. He's a great photographer of food, and he's also an incredible artist. Yeah, he's, he's I mean, really got he's got the triple threat. He really does, and, yeah. and somehow he's able to balance those things. He's yeah, one of the most talented musicians uh, today, for sure, um, and creates these these beautiful bodies of work that that stand alone. And but then also in his free time, he photographs his own meals. Yeah. Uh, uh, does it have to be original to be considered art? That's the question, uh, right? What about like? You know, think of Warhol's work. Right. You know, they're like uh, of like the the Campbell's Soup series, um, which in and of itself, it's a it's a simple painting rendering of a soup can with different colors. Right. But it pulls various emotions from the the viewer. Um, but I, it's 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 simultaneously original and not original. I think so. We had Andrew Andrew Schultz on the show. He's a comedian, and one of the things that he said that really stood out to me, he said, "The thing is, we're not comfortable with it is and it isn't. Is it original? Yes. Is it not original? Yes. I think both of those things can yeah. be true simultaneously. Yeah, the, the world is not binary. The world is not black and white. I think if she is finding enjoyment, if she is finding some inspiration in it." Uh, Sure. I mean, I don't know who who, who the they is right. in this. You know, who is they anyway? Right. Uh, who, who's considering it art or not considering it art? I don't know why that matters. But so, so Seth Godin says, yeah, make um, <clears throat> make work you care about for people who care about it. And I'm probably butchering that quote, but but ultimately, it's like, what do you find to be meaningful? And then you're making it for people who actually care about it, not for people who wouldn't consider it to be right. art. Uh, yeah, if she's making it for her own joy, chances are 
it's going to end up being art because she's doing it for the joy of making it. Uh-huh. Um, if she's doing it for a client that needs a cheeseburger photographed effectively, colorfully, and rich detail, um, it's fulfilling its objective. And that's cool too. Yeah. (laughs) You know, doing good, there's a lot to be said for doing good work. Right. And, and there, there's something, by the way, if, if your client finds it to be meaningful and useful, then that's what you're trying to accomplish anyway. I mean, unless you're not, unless you ultimately don't want to take on client work anymore, then that's, that's something else. But if you are taking on client work, understand that there, you want to be able to express yourself through your art, but they're also going to have expectations and that's okay if they're paying you for the work. Yeah. Uh, Lorinda says, I'm curious to know your thoughts on hobbies turned careers. I started dabbling in photography after my first son was born. A year later, I turned my hobby into a full-blown career. But I've always felt a tremendous amount of guilt charging people for anything. <laughs> I'm so passionate. For, Sounds like she's in the right business. Uh, so I'm so, yeah, right. <laughs> that's, that's, that's how it should be. Yeah. Well, she said, but so not she, guilt. Change that from guilt to suspension of belief. Okay. And congratulations, Lorinda. She said, I'm so passionate. I do it for free, but I also need to feed my family. Any advice on getting past the guilt? I mean, I, mean, I see that almost every time I'm on stage to myself. Like, I can't believe this is, this is the job. Right. You know, when that, achieve, when that connection that we've talked about over and over again, when that is happening in real time in a room full of people and... I'm having the opportunity to say something that is true to me, you know, with the camaraderie of my brother in arms or sisters in arms, and, and, and you're having this collective exchange of energy. I can't believe that's something that you get paid for. That's absurd. Yeah. But, but uh, guilt, man, guilt is a complicated beast. What if you um, change the gratitude then? Because it yeah. sounds, sounds like when you're on stage, you're like, oh my God, I can't that, believe yeah, I get to yeah. do this. That is a great bit of advice. Just flip the switch from guilt to gratitude. If you're doing good work, you have nothing to be guilty for. The people need people need great great pictures in this world. They, mm-hmm. they, you know, that's that's one of the primary lightning rods for getting an audience to pay attention. So um, she's providing an incredible service. She should be grateful that people are willing to to pay for it. When Ryan no I, guilt. No guilt. When Ryan and I first released our, our, our first book, Minimalism, this one here, I, I remember we went on tour. We did like a 33-city tour, 2011, 2012, and we were, I was terrified, right, I, I, to actually charge people for this thing that I, and I felt bad for it almost. And uh, there's a, a Charging great, for the... Uh, the show, like the show, or the charging for charging for the book itself, book even itself. because I'm like, it's a, you know, there's a, all, everything we do is steeped in irony now, right? Because like, oh, you're the minimalist and you don't sell a minimal amount of books, you fraud or whatever, and, and so like, there's that, and so I'm acutely aware of that. But then also, we we're going out on the road and it's we're promoting a book we're really proud of, and it's. It's not a perfect book, but it's the absolute best I could do given the resources I had at the time. Yeah. And there's a blogger, a really great blogger named um, Leo Babalta, uh, a great author too. And he said, hey, if you're really proud of the work and people find value in it, mm-hmm. then you should never feel guilty for something that you're proud of. And so no. I guess what I would say to, to Lorinda is if you feel good about what you're producing, then you should feel gratitude for the ability to, to be able to produce it yeah. and get paid for it. No, we, we need more people in this world finding joy in the work that they do. Mm. So that's great. Congratulations yeah. and thank you. Yeah, yes, and keep <laughs> at it. Uh, let's do uh, one or two more here. Jennifer says, knowing what you know about originality and craft, what advice would you give your younger self? So, younger self, um, man, start doing it sooner. Uh, I, that's what I would have told myself because I wasted a lot of time. I had two selves. I had corporate JFM and like personal creative JFM. Yeah. And it, a weird thing in the corporate world is that personal creativity was actually discouraged in, in a weird way. It was like, if you're going to produce something or be creative, you better do it for this, mm-hmm. this heartless corporation. 
And I was like, well, uh, okay. So I kind of hid my creative side, never talked to people about it, felt a weird sense of shame about it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it was because that's what was imposed on, on, on me. And so I, I lived almost these two different lives. Uh, and the corporate self hid himself from the creative self. And so I would say find a way to integrate sooner because um, I could have used that creativity to write really amazing corporate emails. In fact, that, that it, it got to a point where I was doing, I was writing corporate emails. People found them funny and, mm -hmm. and people were asking me about it. Like, well, you're writing these emails like, and people were actually reading them because in mm -hmm. the corporate world, it's impossible to get people to read your emails because I was being absurd or funny or whatever, uh, uh, pithy. And, and people started asking, hey, can you show me how to write emails to be more yeah. effective in the corporate world and it was like oh right. there are ways to be creative here as well but also do it sooner i, I think so i waited way too long originality and craft man i I'm, i kind of have another side of the coin um i, I almost suffered from a, sort of a naive precociousness early okay. in my career that i have some feelings of embarrassment over now you know, there's like a, an overabundance of, of self-confidence given what I had in terms of uh, skill as a songwriter as an, and as a musician, you know? Uh -huh. There's almost a sense of, of entitlement. Um, oh. I feel like I'm finally maybe just barely starting to catch up in terms of my skill level with my <laughs> original sense of like, okay, I can do this. Uh -huh. But that little bit of embarrassment embarrassment uh, or negative feeling that i carry now or that i you know that i'm aware of now is uh offset in spades by the fact that i've been able to in enjoy a creative life a creative existence um do you think so, it served you though at some point like maybe you the yes the, for sure. the arrogance or whatever you want to call it served you to a certain for extent. sure and 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 i think that even to some extent I could have benefited from more of it because you know I've seen all different all different uh, career trajectories where uh, folks who had this sort of blind confidence that they were going to get to the, the bigger stage they did you know even if in my estimation like I didn't fully understand uh, why the work was connecting the way it did uh -huh. um, but I think that it's not for you to decide if something is original. It's not for you to decide if it's good, you know, in the beginning. You just got to make the stuff, you know. You have to, you have to set out to, I, I, to do it. And, you know, I always would tell people in my, uh, in my 30s, when I was touring around, the things you think you need was when I first started doing a bunch of interviews. And the question always comes up, like, what advice would you give to your former self? And my response was something I learned while I was working at, at Room 5, you know, booking the bands and kind of creating this scene um, or making myself the epicenter of this little scene of singer-songwriters, you yeah. know, like a, a, a living room of sorts where music could take place. Um, and that was tell the truth and surround yourself with people that inspire you. Mm. And those two things will you know one surrounding yourself by people that inspire you or by you know having a collection of of inspiration that 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 will serve as a barometer for your originality and craft can you put your work up amongst the, the stuff that you look up to you know does it does it have a place there and if you're speaking your your own truth almost nothing else matters yeah. you know yeah, I like that. I think it's a great place to end, Jay. We're, we're, let's play Let's play him out with a song today. I would encourage folks, you can check out Jay. You can check out all his music, jaynash.com. Uh, Wearethecontenders.com as mm -hmm. well, correct? That's right. Um, what should we play them out with today? Um, I, I guess you could. You, you want to play the, the newest song? Let's do the it. The newest Jay Nash song? Yeah. yeah. It's called Keepers of the Time. All right, let's check it out. Jay, thank you for being here. I want to acknowledge you for creating something meaningful, man. And, oh, thanks uh, so much, man. Likewise. I'm, I'm grateful an for honor the and a pleasure. I'm grateful for the music you put out. I'm grateful for what you're doing in the world, and I, I hope you continue to do it for many years to come. Thanks, man. All right, Likewise. Here, here is Keepers of the Time. All right, y'all. Love people. Use things. We'll see you next time. Are we poets and lovers, fathers and mothers? Are we prophets and seekers? 
Fools or high preachers, are we judges and loners? Sisters and brothers, are we gamblers or saviors? Saints or just sinners? Wondering about life, sometimes it's hard to know if it's worth the sacrifice. Yes, the keepers of the time, the masters of rhyme, with pianos and guitars, in arenas and dive bars, singing to our souls and speaking to our minds. Keepers of the time, we all follow. Keepers of the time. Keepers of the time. 